You are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode number eight in the series. Today's episode is titled Telemachus. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Odyssey, the podcast. And you are now listening to episode number eight, an episode I have titled Telemachus. So just to reset where we left things at the end of episode number seven, the story of Calypso, you will recall that that particular episode opened up with a council of the gods, with Zeus, Athena, and the other deities up there on Mount Olympus making some decisions. And in that scene, Athena, the goddess of wisdom, had turned to her father, Zeus, king of the gods, and implored Zeus to allow Odysseus to leave Calypso's island. Well, Zeus had acceded to his daughter's request and then sent Hermes, the messenger of the gods, to Calypso's island, telling Calypso that, sorry, you've had a great seven years with the boy, but it's now time to let him be getting on back home. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here we are in episode eight of Odyssey, the podcast, And our episode is going to open with that very same Council of the Gods on Mount Olympus scene all over again. The very same scene. And if you're confused, then don't beat yourself up too badly. Here's why we need the scene twice. Homer's Odyssey includes an incredibly convoluted plot structure. There were flashbacks, there were time shifts, there were stories within stories, possibly even within stories. And what that necessitates for Homer inside of his written text is that occasionally to help his readers or his listeners resituate themselves in time and space by, well, redoing scenes, just sort of as a little bit of a recap or a sense of here we are again right now. Now, I confess to you, way back when I set up my Odyssey the Podcast project, I think I talked about this in the post-story commentary of episode number one, that I have chosen for our podcasting purposes to abandon the complex time-shifting structure of Homer's written Odyssey, and for my podcast purposes, to reorder the events of the story in a more chronological sequence. Now, my view is that Homer's structure in the Odyssey works absolutely brilliantly if you're reading the Odyssey, and especially if you are pondering the Odyssey as a work of literature. But my own years of telling stories from the Odyssey, or the entire Odyssey, on stage and live to audiences who have no prior knowledge of the story has convinced me that I am wise to follow my lesser muses, if you will, and for our podcasting purposes, reorder Homer's work into a chronological sequence. So, back to that second council up on Mount Olympus. Up on Mount Olympus, ladies and gentlemen, two things are pretty well happening at the very same time. Zeus is sending Hermes to Calypso's island, delivering the news that Odysseus must be allowed to go home. But at the very same time, as Hermes is jetting across the Mediterranean to Calypso's island, well, Athena is jetting off on an entirely different rescue mission to the island of Ithaca. 
So, we already know what happened on Calypso's island. And we already know that Odysseus has now just washed up on the shores of the land of the Phaeacians. So here in episode 8 of Odyssey the Podcast, we are going to follow Athena's rescue mission, her simultaneous rescue mission, if you will, to the island of Ithaca. Here's what happened. First off, just like Hermes, in advance of his rescue flight to Calypso's island, Athena needed to kit herself up appropriately for her cross-Mediterranean flight to the island of Ithaca. Homer reports to us that, quote, She tied her sandals on her feet, the marvelous golden sandals that she wears to travel land and sea as fast as the wind. And it's interesting, ladies and gentlemen, that Hermes had kitted himself up with precisely the same sort of magical flight-inducing sandals on his visit to Calypso's island. But then the differences, well, they appear. Hermes, as you know, was a diplomat, which meant that he necessarily traveled on his flights and his rescue missions without weaponry. But Athena cared very little for those sort of diplomatic niceties. So along with her magical flying sandals, Homer tells us that, quote, She took the heavy bronze-tipped spear that she uses to tame the ranks of warriors with who she is enraged. And then, flying sandals on feet, bronze spear in hand, Athena only needed one more minor element to be completely kitted up for her rescue mission to Ithaca. Athena required a disguise. Her goal on the upcoming rescue mission was to be subtle. So showing up in her true deific form as an immortal Olympic deity was not going to work. Rather, she was going to need to disguise herself as a human being. And of course, since this is a patriarchal Bronze Age story, that meant that Athena was going to have to disguise herself as a man. Had she appeared in Ithaca as a human woman, well, she would have lost all of her liberty of movement around Odysseus's palace and estates, and then, of course, none of the Ithacan men would have given her the time of day, no matter how wise or deific her advice was. So, Athena, before launching from Mount Olympus, transformed herself into a man. Specifically, she transformed into a copper trader, bound for the island of Cyprus, who, in Athena's entirely fictional backstory, had known Odysseus well back in the day before the Trojan War. Now, Athena chose a name for herself. She decided that her copper trader, bound for Cyprus, would be called Mentor. And I have to hasten to add that Athena was not being wittily or deliberately on the nose inside of this choice of name, although that would have been oh so delicious. But the fact is, folks, that our contemporary use of the term mentor to describe an older individual providing guidance or wisdom to somebody young and less wise, well, that contemporary term actually derives from Athena, the goddess's first use of it inside of the Odyssey. And so... Athena slash mentor took flight from Mount Olympus and sometime later, Homer disappointingly never fills us in on the flight speed of magical sandals, but sometime later, a stranger named mentor sporting a fearsome bronze spear and we can hope some now rather ordinary and masculine looking sandals was seen standing outside the front doors of Odysseus's palace in Ithaca. And with her arrival, Athena's rescue mission to Ithaca was underway. And of course, folks, 
you are rightly wondering at this stage in the story, what or who has the goddess set out to rescue? And the short answer to that question is Telemachus, Odysseus's son, 20-year-old Telemachus, who was in dire need of some deific help. Here's why. The island kingdom of Ithaca was in the midst of a constitutional crisis and very close to coming apart at the seams. And Telemachus, the heir apparent and the man who should have been stepping up, taking charge of the crisis and resolving it, well, Telemachus was not currently up to the task at hand. Folks, it pains me to say it, but Odysseus's son Telemachus was immature, indecisive, prone to bouts of daydreaming and self-pity, and, well, truth be told, more than a little wee bit of a first-class wuss. And though the lad physically resembled his hero father, in every other department, courage, confidence, military prowess, and leadership, the son Telemachus was at best a pale and milquetoast reflection of his dad. For 20 years, he had been coddled and protected beneath his mother's skirts, and the consequences of Penelope's parenting decisions, which we touched on in detail way back in episode number one, well, now they were apparent for everybody in Ithaca to see. So, Athena's rescue mission was to prompt young Telemachus to grow up, to grow a spine, and at least begin to transform himself into a son more fitting of his hero father. The last thing that anybody needed, Athena knew, was for Odysseus to finally achieve his longed-for homecoming after 20 years away, and then discover when he arrived home that his son, his heir, had, well, turned into a bit of an embarrassing mama's boy. And folks, I suppose I should likely stop here and, well, clarify a few things, because I'm using some pretty rough terminology, and it's certainly not consistent with our contemporary 21st century value systems of identity or of gender roles or politics. But allow me to remind you that I am telling you a patriarchal Bronze Age story, and Ithaca is, well, it is an alpha male Bronze Age warrior culture. So put quite bluntly, not only for the sake of a happy father-son reunion, but actually for the good of the entire state of Ithaca and its eventual heir, Telemachus, it was imperative that even at this late stage in his upbringing, the young man Telemachus begin, bluntly put, to grow himself a pair. And the goddess Athena had jetted all the way down from Mount Olympus in order to assist the 20-year-old man-child in doing just that, growing himself a pair. And so, cultural context in place, let's now return to the Ithacan constitutional crisis. And in short, folks, here was the problem that Ithaca was facing. Ithaca was a hereditary kingdom, but the problem was that Ithaca did not have a king. Or, to be more accurate about it, I suppose, they might have had a king. Nobody really knew for sure anymore. The problem was that Odysseus had been missing in action for the past 10 years. But the Bronze Age of Ithaca, well, it had absolutely no constitutional means of officially declaring Odysseus, their king, to be dead. 
And that reality, well, it had precipitated a constitutional crisis for the kingdom of Ithaca and a domestic crisis for Odysseus's family, especially for his wife Penelope and his young son and heir Telemachus. First off, well, poor Penelope was in a terrible bind. Here's why. If her husband, Odysseus, was still alive, then her absolute duty was to remain faithful to him and to continue on in her role as Ithaca's caretaker queen. But on the other hand, if her husband Odysseus was dead, then Penelope's equally absolute duty was to relinquish her role as queen and turn the kingdom over to the heir apparent, Telemachus. Following that, Ithacan society would have expected Penelope to leave the palace, to return to her father's home, and to wait there until her aging dad had arranged another husband for her. Which would, of course, have left 20-year-old Telemachus entirely on his own in the Ithacan palace, as Ithaca's rightful king, with absolutely no help whatsoever from his mum. But the problem was, young Telemachus was simply not ready to step into the big shoes of kingship. Penelope knew it. Everybody knew it. The lad was not yet currently anywhere near up to the job. And folks, the reality of Telemachus not being up for the job had created a power vacuum inside of Ithaca. And in any nation where there's a leadership power vacuum, well, pretty soon the political opportunists arrived to fill said vacuum. In the case of Ithaca, the political opportunists who arrived were Ithaca's generation of lost boys. There were 108 of them in total. They were the noble-born sons of fathers who had left 20 years ago for the Trojan War and had never returned from that war. And now these sons, Telemachus's contemporaries, if you will, they saw a golden political opportunity an opportunity to stage a bloodless coup and to become Ithaca's new king. Here's how they were going to do it. First, by officially declaring that Ithaca's rightful king, Odysseus, was most certainly dead. And then, by simply ignoring the weakling Telemachus's rightful claim to the throne. And finally, by forcing Penelope to marry one of them, effectively making that man Ithaca's new king and Penelope that new king's queen. And the 108 suitors were reasoning that whichever one of them was lucky enough to win Penelope, well, she was only 35 years old, still rather luscious looking, and with any luck, she'd be able to push out a son or two for her new husband, and a brand new royal family bloodline would then rule Ithaca. And gods forbid, as far as the suitors were concerned, if Odysseus did actually manage to make it home alive at some future date, well, it would be much too late. The new, brand new, royal Ithacan family would be well-established and in place, and anybody that might have, well, supported Odysseus's late claim or returning claim would, of course, have been summarily killed before his arrival. All in all, I think we can admit, if we step outside of the story for a moment, that the suitors had come up with a pretty good plan. So Athena had had to stage her rescue mission. And now here she was in front of Ithaca, materializing outside the front doors of the palace, replete in her disguise as the copper trader bound for Cyprus, 
named Mentor. And Athena had two simple rescue mission goals. Number one, prompt young Telemachus into growing up and growing a pair. And number two, in the interim, protect young Telemachus from being summarily assassinated by any one of those 108 suitors to his mama. And right there, sitting in front of the gates of Ithaca, sat the target of her rescue mission, Telemachus himself. Glum-faced, dejected, and Homer reports, hopelessly caught up in a daydream. A daydream which Homer tells us, that his great father had come back home from wherever he was, and had driven the suitors out headlong, and regained his honors, and ruled his house once again. But, ladies and gentlemen, we should give young Telemachus some credit, because if there was one kingly skill that the boy had absolutely mastered, then it was the protocol of how to appropriately treat a guest. And the arrival of a stranger at the front door of his home immediately shook Telemachus out of his self-pity. The very moment he caught sight of the stranger, he leapt up and hurried to greet the man. In Homer's words, Ashamed that a guest had been kept waiting, neglected at the front door. And then, in the appropriate protocols of Xenia, Telemachus had approached the guest, shook the guest's hand, deftly but quite graciously disarmed the guest of his fearsome-looking bronze spear, and only then spoke. A good evening, stranger, and welcome. Be our guest. Come share our dinner, and then tell us what you need. And with that, Telemachus led Athena, disguised as mentor, into his father's palace, and seated Athena on the room's most magnificent and comfortable chair, pulling out a smaller, much less elaborate chair for himself, the host. In a moment, the house slaves had been summoned, and soon the guest, the stranger, was being treated to absolutely first-rate zinnia. Massive platters of tempting meats and golden mugs flowing with excellent, best-in-the-house vintage wine. And ladies and gentlemen, of course, Telemachus, the perfect host, was not once so gauche as to inquire into the stranger's name or the stranger's business. Such personal and prying questions, we know because we're experts in Zinnia, are only appropriate once a guest stranger's immediate needs have been sufficiently and amply taken care of. But, just as the stranger guest was finishing up his meal, suddenly the silent room was filled with chaos. And those 108 suitors to Penelope, who had been outside of the palace, had now decided to take their partying indoors. Soon, the quiet room where Telemachus had graciously seated his weary traveler was booming with the noise of 108 alcohol-fueled, highly obnoxious suitors, prompting the ever-so-polite Telemachus to apologize for the noise and the rudeness and to fill his guest in on the details of what his guest, the goddess Athena, of course, already knew. And in short order, folks, Telemachus essentially bared his soul to the goddess, complaining that the suitors had arrived at the palace four long years earlier, and since then had been voraciously consuming their way through the household stocks of food and drink, and providing absolutely nothing back 
in return to the household's stores. And as to poor Telemachus, well, he confessed to his guest that he had not the slightest idea what to do about the situation. And so Athena slash mentor got to work. First of all, she assured Telemachus that, I am sure that your father is not yet dead. He will devise a means of getting home. Your father is quite resourceful. And then she went to work on bucking up Telemachus's self-concept, gamely trying to assure the lad that he was indeed his father's son and his father's heir. Are you really Odysseus's son? You must be. You certainly look like him, with your face and your handsome eyes. It really is quite an amazing resemblance. And I do remember your father well. We spent a great deal of time together, back before he sailed to Troy, back in the old days. Now, the speech, of course, was designed to remind Telemachus that, like father, like son. But folks, poor Telemachus had become so despondent, so doubting of his prowess in the hero department, that he began to even wonder whether he was Odysseus's genuine, legitimate son. Dear guest, Telemachus confessed, I will be frank with you. My mother says that I am Odysseus's son, but I am not so sure. So Athena's you-are-your-father's-son strategy seemed to be going nowhere. And the goddess in desperation then pivoted to a different approach, turning the conversation back to those 108 suitors. First, well, Athena agreed that these suitors were well-deserving of any punishment that came their way. I have never seen such a rowdy, insolent crowd of gluttons carousing in every room of your palace. Any good man would be disgusted at such indecent behavior. And then Athena had counseled a specific course of action for Telemachus. You, you need to act and come up with a way to get rid of those suitors. It is no longer fitting for you to act like a child. You are a man now, Telemachus. And so tomorrow, Athena counseled, I want you to call a public assembly of all of Ithaca's leading men. And in the presence of that assembly, you demand that the suitors all go home. And then after that, well, leave Ithaca for a while. Go to Pylos and then to Sparta. The leaders there, they both knew your father well. They fought beside him at Troy. They might have news of whether Odysseus lives or is dead. And when you are out of town, I want you to give some serious thought to how you are going to kill those suitors if, in your travels, you do learn that your father is dead. And then finally, folks, mentor Athena launched into an instructive tale for young Telemachus. And if you will forgive me a brief digression, it is, I need to tell you, the very same instructive tale that has permeated and will permeate all of Homer's Odyssey. And we've already heard the story once. Agamemnon shared it with us back when we visited the land of the dead. And the story, of course, is the cautionary tale of Agamemnon returning from the war at Troy only to be murdered on the day of his return by his faithless wife Clytemnestra and the lover 
who had conspired with her, the much-loathed and generally all-round evil villain of the story, Aegisthus. And we've already discussed, folks, in previous episodes, how the faithless Clytemnestra story serves as a cautionary exemplar of all the terrible things that can go wrong if wives become impatient and then faithless in waiting for their rightful husbands to return home and resume their place on the throne. But the second part of the story, the part that Athena, disguised as mentor, was now hammering home for young Telemachus's edification, was the story of Agamemnon's son, a lad named Orestes. And what young Orestes had done when he had come to about Telemachus's age in his life, was to return to the family estate at Mycenae and revenge his father's murder by killing the evil Aegisthus and, in most accounts of the tale, by also killing his own faithless mum, too. And, and ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to pause just in case your 21st century value systems are getting in the way of you understanding Homer's purpose in telling this story. Back in the Odyssey, everybody, and I mean absolutely everybody, gods and mortals, they all agree that what Orestes has done in his act of revenge, in killing Aegisthus and indeed his own mum, well, it actually models him as the very model of the modern dutiful son. And mentor Athena, in telling the tale of Orestes to young Telemachus, was being none too subtle in her message to the lad. If a suitor, or in this case, even 108 suitors, threaten the fidelity of your father's wife, then the proper task of you, as your father's son, is to exact a terrible revenge on that suitor. And then, with that cautionary tale well delivered, and the promise of Telemachus's public speaking debut in the morning to follow, Mentor bade young Telemachus a good night. I'll be sleeping in my own ship tonight, he said. I have some things to take care of with my crew. But I wish you the best of luck with your speech-making tomorrow morning. And then, ladies and gentlemen, just as a final good measure before Athena slash mentor vanished away for the night, and because it certainly looked like poor Telemachus could use the bucking up, Athena offered a wee bit of additional fortitude, if you will, to the lat by letting slip momentarily her mentor disguise and allowing Telemachus to realize that he was actually being mentored by a god. Homer tells us what happened. At that moment, the goddess flew away, like a bird, and she left Telemachus feeling braver, more determined, and with his father even more in mind. Watching her go, he was amazed, and he saw that she was a god. And so ended day one of Athena's rescue mission to Ithaca. So now, let's move on to day two. At dawn the next day, Telemachus woke up and prepared himself for his big day. Today, of course, was a day that he intended to follow mentor's advice, call an assembly, and forcefully state his complaint against those 108 suitors. So first off, the young man got dressed. He strapped a sword across his back, 
uh, largely for ceremony, I hasten to add, as Telemachus had no idea how to use a sword. And then he grabbed himself a fearsome-looking bronze spear from his father's spear cabinet. Again, for show, as Telemachus had no idea how to use a spear. Finally, just for the theatre of it, Telemachus decided to accompany himself into the town square for his speech with the companionship of two fearsome-looking hunting dogs. Again, there's absolutely no evidence that Telemachus had ever actually gone hunting. But Athena, invisibly appreciating that Telemachus was at least conscious that, well, optics and first impressions matter, Athena decided to help him out a little bit with some deific magic. Homer tells us that she, quote, magically endowed him with such miraculous grace that everyone marveled when they saw him approach. So all in all, the combination of Telemachus's costumes and props and Athena's uh, magical endowments, if you will, well, it led to a nice, dramatic, forceful, and promising entrance to Telemachus's big speech. Well, when Telemachus arrived in the town square, the local Ithacan elders, the government officials, and a whole host of Ithacan townspeople were assembled and waiting. Word had got out that the heir apparent had something important to say to the masses. So they were all standing there, and of course, standing beside Ithaca's townsfolk were those 108 young, fit, healthy, and very, very well-armed suitors. And then young Telemachus launched into what was his very first public speech, articulating his complaint against the suitors. <laughs> uh, um, I have brought you all here to this meeting place to complain of the trouble that has descended upon my house. Uh, two troubles. First, I have lost my excellent father. And next, my mother, against her will, is being harassed by that pack of suitors, the sons of the very best families. They lounge around in our palace day after day. They slaughter our oxen and our sheep and our goats, and they hold a continual banquet, carousing, drinking our wine, with no regard for the property that they are wasting. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Telemachus, getting into full speech mode, addressed the heart of the problem facing him, and why, of course, he needed the help of the assembled citizenry of Ithaca. Telemachus continued his speech. I cannot fight against them, Telemachus pointed to the 108 suitors. I, I would be quite useless. You see, I have no training. If I had the power, I would do it. But it is unbearable what they have done. And then Telemachus paused, summing up his thoughts in the entire situation. And he spoke again. It is not fair. And folks, I fear I have to report that with that, it is not fair. Telemachus's speech, so far so promising, fell badly off of the rails. The poor lad, overwhelmed by the moment, well, he lost control of his kingly delivery. And then he manifestly failed to conclude his speech in anything approaching a decisive or manly fashion. Homer accounts the awkwardness that followed. Telemachus stopped speaking, frustrated, and then he burst into tears. 
Well, an awkward silence ensued in the town square. The Ithacan townspeople staring at their feet, not quite sure what to say. Uh, the speech had started out promising enough, and it might have offered those townspeople something to rally around, but then the bursting into tears halfway through the speech, well, that had just been embarrassing, especially to witness in a 20-year-old heir to Ithaca's throne. Well, the awkward silence lingered over the town square for some time, but then the silence was broken. And the chief of the suitors, a man named Antinous, the very same age, incidentally, of Telemachus himself, well, Antinous stepped forward, and a much more confident and commanding speaker than had been young Telemachus, Antinous launched into his speech, outlining the suitor's perspective on Ithaca's current constitutional crisis. Telemachus, you stuck up, Willful little boy. How dare you try to embarrass us and put the blame for this onto us? We suitors have not done you any wrong. Do you want to know who is responsible for this entire situation? The person at fault, Telemachus, is your own incomparably cunning mother. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, Antinous recounted a tale. So here's what had happened. Back about five years earlier, the first of the suitors had arrived at Ithaca's palace, there to court Penelope, bypass Telemachus, and make, if you will, an end run onto Ithaca's throne. But of course, once the first of the suitors had arrived at the palace, it was only a mere matter of days before the next eager bidder showed up uh, to throw his helmet into the ring, so to speak. And in a matter of weeks, well, the floodgates had opened. Soon there were 108 aspiring young men in the palace, all of them competing for Penelope's affections, and not one of them daring to leave the palace for even a moment for fear that they would not be present on the hoped-for, longed-for, much-anticipated day when Penelope finally gave up on Odysseus's ever returning and chose one of them instead. And ladies and gentlemen, that situation, a 108 eager young 20-something young men clambered into her palace and waiting for her to choose, well, that had forced Penelope into a desperate and dangerous delaying strategy, trying to find, well, some way to keep 108 eager young men at bay. First of all, she had set off on a deliberate course of flirting with the men. Not with any one man in particular, but rather Penelope systematically teased and flirted with them all. One day with one man, one day with another man. And it was all, of course, in a calculated effort to keep all of the men's helmets in the ring, so to speak. What Penelope knew that she could not risk about anything else was to have one consensus front runner to emerge from the pack of suitors and then, well, chase the rest of them all away. So Penelope quite rightly reasoned that as long as all 108 men were competing with each other for her as yet undecided affections, 
the lot of them would largely behave themselves around her. And, well, until recently, the strategy had been working. Unless, of course, you were one of Penelope's unfortunate and powerless young slave girls. It was those girls who bore the brunt of the suitors' sexual frustrations. Well, they sat holed up in the palace for those long four years, waiting for the anticipated night when they would win the bidding war and get to bed the real prize. And Penelope then had a second tactic to hold off having to choose. She made the suitors a specific promise. Here's what she told them. Gentlemen, I'm in the middle of a major weaving project at the moment, but I promise you this, the very moment that my weaving is completed, I will choose one of you as my new husband and Ithaca's new king. Now, what these suitors had not realized back four years ago when Penelope had made her once I've completed my weaving promise, is that Penelope had no intention of ever actually completing her weaving project. Instead, what she would do is diligently weave all day and then secretly unravel that day's work each night. And so Penelope's weaving project had dragged on and on and on. And I think it's a bit of a testament to how absolutely gender-rolled Bronze Age Ithacan society was, that not once during those entire four long years of systematically weaving and then unweaving did it occur to even one of 108 men in the palace that something was amiss with Penelope's plan. Eventually, it was a disgruntled female servant who had leaked word to the suitors of what was happening, and, well, now the jig was up. Penelope had been caught out in her well-woven lie, I suppose, and the suitors had finally realized that the flirting, the coying, teasing, and all of that, well, that was part of a delay strategy, too. Penelope had no intention of ever choosing or marrying any of them. And so the lead suitor, Antinous, continued his public complaint. For more than three years, in fact, for almost four years now, she has been leading us on. She nurtures our hopes, and to each one of us, she makes promises that she has absolutely no intention of ever keeping. So, here is our answer, simply and clearly stated. Penelope cannot keep dangling any longer. But if she wants to go on hurting us, we suitors, we will keep eating up your wealth and your livelihood. We will not go back to our farms or go back anywhere until Penelope picks a husband. Now, folks, before we proceed on with the story, I would ask you to allow me a brief aside. As your storyteller, having shared with you both sides of the Ithacan constitutional debate, Telemachus's argument against the suitors, and the suitors' case against Penelope, well, I have to confess that I find myself in some sympathy with both positions. First off, while well, poor Penelope is trapped, she cannot do anything to end the crisis in Ithaca, unless she is absolutely certain that her husband Odysseus is dead. So her duty, her only duty, 
is to delay, to hope against hope that Odysseus will someday return. And in the meantime, all she can do is try to protect her son's claim to the throne as best she can. But in doing so, and here I have to sympathize with the suitors, Penelope is prolonging the profound dysfunction in all of Ithacan society. Ithaca, I need not remind you, is a patriarchal Bronze Age kingdom. It cannot continue to go on year after chaotic year without the leadership of a strong and sure-footed king. And Telemachus, all of Ithaca knows it, is nowhere near ready to be that king. But, ladies and gentlemen, that is my 21st century perspective on the dilemma from a comfortable distance of 3,000 years. But let's return to our story now, because my perspective is certainly not the opinion shared by Zeus, father of gods and men. Here is what happened the moment that Antinous completed his case for the suitors. Homer tells us, And then Zeus, whose voice resounds around the world, sent down two eagles. Reaching the noisy middle of the crowd, the eagles hovered, flapping their wings, with death in their eyes. Then they stopped in midair and slashed their own cheeks and necks with their sharp talons before flying away. Now, were we to witness this sort of thing happening over our current town squares, we might not know what to make of it. But that's because we weren't living in Bronze Age Ithaca. Sadly, folks, in the 21st century, the lost art of divining the will of God from the flight of birds is, well, a lost art. But inside of Ithacan society, there was no such doubt what the arrival of two of Zeus's eagles meant. Immediately, an old man stepped out from the crowd, an acknowledged expert at reading the auguries. And the old man spoke. Now, Ithacans, listen to me. I speak especially for the suitors. Disaster rolls their way. Odysseus will not be absent for long. Already he is near and sows the seeds of death for all of them and more disaster for many others in bright Ithaca. So, let us put a stop to this right away while we still can. Or better yet, let the suitors stop of their own accord. I am no novice at interpreting omens or prophesying. I know exactly what I am talking about. Odysseus is nearing the end of his travels. And the suitors, of course, should have paid close attention. The birds had been eagles, always associated with Father Zeus, and reading the auguries was, in the Bronze Age, a highly respected and scientific pursuit. But folks, it was too late for the suitors now. They had locked themselves into their end game, and so, well, instead of heeding Zeus's warning, the suitors decided to double down. 
And it was a suitor named Eurymachus, one of the other lead suitors, who turned on the old man, the prophet, and spoke on behalf of the suitors. Go home, old man. Prophecy to your children, or else some terrible fate might fall on their heads. And as for this so-called omen you speak of, I will do better than you in interpreting it. In my opinion, it means nothing at all. Old man, there are plenty of birds that fly under the sun, and most of them, I assure you, are birds, not omens. So now I will utter a prophecy. If you incite Telemachus to violence, he will be the first to suffer from it. And here is some good advice for Telemachus. Let him command his mother to prepare to be wed. Until he does this, not one of us suitors will stop pursuing her. We aren't afraid of any man, and much less of this boy with his long speeches. And furthermore, we intend to keep consuming his wealth and to not pay a penny for it in exchange, so long as his mother keeps putting us off. And so, folks, the constitutional crisis of Ithaca had clearly remained at an impasse. With Penelope and Telemachus, and now, of course, the Olympian gods, on the one side of it, and those 108 suitors on the other. As to the assembly of townspeople, well, they didn't dare to raise their voice or their weapons against the much more powerful suitors. So the townspeople remained conspicuously and awkwardly silent. So the meeting broke up. The townspeople happy to go home, the suitors returning to the palace, and Telemachus, in desperation and humiliation, walking down to the seashore and praying. Hear me, whoever you are who came to my house yesterday morning, the god who urged me to sail over the sea and look for my father, I want to obey you, but my, my voyage is being delayed by those contemptible suitors. And Athena, disguised again as mentor, immediately arrived beside Telemachus. First, she provided him with some comforting counsel, letting him know that though the suitors were unaware of it as of yet, they were already among the walking dead, as far as she was concerned. But then Athena laid out a specific plan of action for the young prince. She instructed Telemachus to return to the palace and to secretly put together provisions of food and drink, sufficient for the ship and crew to sail from Ithaca to Pylos, the home of Odysseus's old comrade-in-arms, a king named Nestor. Meanwhile, Athena explained, while you are doing that, I will go down to the Ithacan harbor, choose an appropriate ship for our journey, kit that ship out, and then, disguised as you, I will arrange for you a quality ship's crew. And whether Telemachus was at this stage self-aware enough to be rather embarrassed that it was Athena still having to do all of the heavy lifting on the incompetent lad's behalf, 
well, we'll never really know. And further, whether Athena employed her considerable deific powers of suggestion to ensure that the ship's crew all proved to be obedient and eager, well, we'll never know that either. But in the meantime, there was more humiliation and more embarrassment in store for Telemachus as he hiked up to the palace to the storerooms. His path to the storerooms to obtain the provisions for the journey to Pylos brought him directly by the 108 suitors, who immediately, flushed from their, well, what they considered triumph in the town square, launched into considerable mocking and adjuring of the young prince who had moments earlier burst into tears in front of them. Oh no! It is Telemachus! And he's going to kill us all! They say he's going to Pylos or maybe even to Sparta to gather an army! So terrible is Telemachus's vengeance! And then, in the way that bullies do, the suitors managed to triangulate in on what would prove absolutely the most hurtful to the vulnerable young man. They continued. Or who knows? Perhaps he will get lost and die so far away from his family, just like his father did. But eventually, after enduring the mocking, Telemachus completed his mission and returned to the harbor. And the ship that Athena had personally obtained for the voyage was provisioned, and Athena's hand-picked crew were waiting on the dock, ready to set sail. And then, folks, well, something actually hopeful happened. Something small, but possibly significant, in Athena's efforts to spur young Telemachus into manhood. First, Telemachus gave an order. Come on, my friends, we must bring the provisions on board the ship. And then, quite remarkably, Athena's hand-picked crew of men, well, they eagerly and obediently obeyed their king's order, doing exactly what a loyal subject should do when they have received a rightful order from their legitimate king. Homer explains it. And with these words, Telemachus led the way, and the rest of them, they followed. They brought the provisions and stowed them on board, and all of the men did what the son of Odysseus had commanded them to do. And when Telemachus commanded his men to set the sails, they jumped to obey his orders. And then the small ship, guided by favorable winds, conjured up by Athena, of course, well, the ship sped certainly through the dark night seas towards Pylos, with Telemachus clearly and certainly and confidently in command. So, possibly, getting away from Ithaca, getting away from the palace, away from the overly protective eyes of his mum and from the daily humiliations of those suitors on his own little odyssey, I suppose. Well, possibly that was just the sort of tonic that young Telemachus needed. And so ended day two of Athena's rescue mission to Ithaca. 
And of course, that brings to an end this particular episode, episode number eight of Odyssey the Podcast. That night, as the ship sped towards Pylos, Athena, disguised as mentor, had lied to young Telemachus, telling him that the journey's purpose was all about seeking news of his missing father. But we know what the road trip was truly all about. Prompting the immature and unready young man to pick up the pace on his own odyssey into manhood. And whether time spent in the company of ancient Nestor or in the hospitality of the famous Helen of Troy was going to do anything to help that maturation process along, well, that is a story for episode number nine of Odyssey the Podcast. So now let's take a moment, refresh our water mugs or our coffee cups, as the case may be, and then I invite you to dive with me into a particular interesting post-story commentary that I've prepared for you. I think you're going to have an awful lot of fun with it. So welcome back, folks, to the post-story commentary. Now, this particular commentary is a direct result of you, my wonderful listeners. Many of you send me emails about my various podcasting projects. And when you do take the trouble of emailing me, I try to make it a point of professional courtesy to craft a personal email reply to you. But there is one particular listener question that, well, it keeps coming up over and over and over again in your emails. Which means, by extension, that I am continually drafting personalized email replies to that question over and over and over again myself. And so, in the interest of my listeners and in my personal interest of reducing the emails in my inbox on this topic, I have decided that I'm going to dedicate an entire post-story commentary to my best answer to one particular and recurring listener question. So the question generally goes like this. Part one, a nice salutation. Hey Jeff, really enjoying your podcast. Or something wonderfully affirming like that. Then part two. So I was wondering, Jeff, what translation of Homer are you using in your podcast? Followed by part three. You see, I, I tried reading Homer's Iliad or Odyssey, back in school, or later in life, or as a self-improvement project, and here the emails vary, but I found it absolutely impossible to understand. So I'm wondering, should I go back, having listened to your podcast, and give the original Homer a try again? And that always leads to part four. And if so, Jeff, which translation of the Odyssey, or of the Iliad, do you think is the best, the most accurate, the most fun to read, the most authoritative, and ultimately, the emails inquire, the one that you, Jeff, would recommend the very most. So to summarize, folks, I get a whole whack of emails all dealing with various issues relating to the subject of Homeric translation. And in this post-story commentary, titled Jeff's Quick Primer on All Things Translation in Homer, I will do my level best to set out some generalized answers to your questions. 
Now, I better emphasize up front, this is just going to be a quick and a fun primer, and it's not by any means an exhaustive or scholarly dissertation on the topic. But with that caveat in place, here is Jeff's game plan for the post-story commentary to follow. First, I'm going to provide a quick review of what I'm going to label the four fundamental tasks of the Homeric translator. Next, I am going to debunk what I consider to be the top two recurring listener myths or myth conceptions or myth stakes, if you will, about Homeric translation. And finally, I will briefly comment on how I use and no doubt frequently misuse and abuse translations of Homer in my own personal podcasting projects. And I will then share with you the names of my current favorite Homeric translators. But just before we dive into the project, if you need a quick refresher on questions like who was Homer or Homer's on the oral storytelling tradition or on the publication histories of either Iliad or Odyssey, then I will refer you to previous post-story commentaries. What you want to do, folks, is go to post-story commentaries number 1, 11, and 16 of Trojan War, the podcast, and post-story commentary number 1 of this Odyssey, the podcast project. And now a brief history of English translations of Homer. The first Odyssey, translated into English, arrived in the year 1615. It was written by a contemporary of Shakespeare's a guy named George Chapman. And then the next groundbreaking translation showed up about a 100 years later, done by the rather brilliant writer named Alexander Pope. His Iliad arrived in 1715, and 10 years later, he graced the world with his Odyssey. And folks, I will be sharing a passage of Alexander Pope's Odyssey with you sometime later inside of this commentary. And then following Alexander Pope, well, the translation floodgates, well, they just opened up. And my quick count indicates that now we have well over 100 English translations of Iliad and at least another 75 English translations of Odyssey. And ladies and gentlemen, new translations keep arriving every few years. For example, Emily Wilson's Odyssey showed up just in 2017 and it took the world well, to be honest, the modestly minor part of the world that cares about such things, by absolute storm. And no doubt that even as I'm sitting here recording this episode now, there's some translator working away in their garret and a brand new copy of Iliad or Odyssey will have graced the world's translation stage before you even get to listening to the words that I'm now recording. So, minor historical context of translation into English now in place, it is on to Jeff's top four tasks of the Homeric translator. And task number one, on the surface at least, sounds deceptively simple. Translate. Do not paraphrase, do not extemporize, do not embellish, and do not edit. Now, as I said, this seems pretty obvious on the surface, but it actually makes the translator's task quite different from that of the task of a storyteller like me. Folks, the translator has to strictly confine him or herself 
to what Homer's original Greek text has to say and not let anything else leak into the translation. Whereas, by contrast, a storyteller like me faces absolutely no such rules or limitations. So, for example, well, just to think of the episode that you recently listened to, I spent in that episode a considerable amount of time explaining to you the social political context, if you will, behind the dilemma that Penelope, Telemachus, and those poor 108 suitors found themselves in. My storyteller instincts were that this could be a particularly confusing section of the story for we 21st century listeners to understand, so I chose to pause my Homer and interject into it a considerable side helping of, well, a former high school history teacher named Jeff. But a translator, of course, cannot do that. A translator is required to confine herself strictly to the Homeric text. Now, just a quick sidebar here. Of course, most translators know that we readers need help in understanding things like social, historical, or political context. So, most translators actually include detailed essays inside of their published translations. And if you open up a copy of a new translation of Homer, you'll usually find, before you get onto the Homeric text, somewhere between 10 to even 40 pages or so, of the translator providing us with the context which the translator believes we need in order to understand the work. And even though I'm about to give you terrible, annoying flashbacks of your professors or school teachers, I am going to encourage you to actually take the time to read those upfront essays by the translators. They really, really, really do help out. They will make a difference in your understanding of Homer. But back on topic. Alongside not being allowed to ever add to the Homeric text, the translator is, of course, not allowed to take anything away from that text either. So, folks, even if in the translator's secret heart of hearts, he knows that the particular section of the story he is currently translating is, well, boring as heck and badly distracts from the plot, the translator is required to keep that boring section in. Now, if you need an example of this, likely the most famous or infamous instance of a case where the translator might want to edit out some of the boring bits, so to speak, is found in Homer's Iliad, book number two, in a tediously long tome grimly referred to by Homeric scholars as the Catalogue of Ships. Now, in this nearly 300-line-long catalog, Homer essentially does the equivalent of reciting for our entertainment the equivalent of a telephone directory, droning on and on and then on some more, listing every Greek warlord who sailed to Troy, that warlord's hometown, the number of ships that that warlord brought to Troy, the number of soldiers on board each of those ships, and then, on occasion, some entirely irrelevant and tedious bits of local knowledge trivia about the warlord in question's hometown. Possibly a hometown famous for its viniculture, or a hometown with meadows fine for the grazing of good sheep. Now, just to be fair to Homer, 
His catalog of ships would have gone over brilliantly back in his live shows. Because pandering to your local audience with some well-placed local knowledge name drops, well, that never grows old with live audiences. I, I certainly do it in all of my live shows, and it always garners huge cheers from the crowds, and I hope to think more coins in my storyteller's cap at the end of the show. But reading a 300-line-long local city shout-out 2,500 years after anybody listening or reading the passage had ever even heard of the city or had a relative living in it, well, it becomes very tedious very quickly. And to prove it, I am going to recite, for your entertainment pleasure, just a mere five lines of the 300 lines contained in Homer's Catalog of Ships. But I am going to make one modification, and I'm going to do that to save me the embarrassment and, well, you folks the pain of listening to me butcher Bronze Age Greek place names. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make one-for-one -one substitutions. I'll take out the name of Homer's town or the name of Homer's warlord and replace it with the name of local towns that I can pronounce or the names of local guys that I know. But otherwise, here it is. The first five lines of Homer's catalog of ships. And now, Muse, help me sing the names of all the captains, and how many ships came with them. The Eastern Ontarians were led by Jeff, Fred, Roger, Jason, Bobby, Angus, and Cletus. They were the men who lived in Orleans, Arnprior, the highlands of Renfrew, in Smith's Falls, and Carlton Place, Kempville, Wide Vars, and Vanier. They lived in Brockville, in Osgood and Embram, Gloucester, Canada, Perth, Burritts Rapids, Rockland, Merrickville, and Armprior, teeming with doves, the pastures of Bell's Corners, Elmont, and Mississippi Mills, the city of Lower Sherbert Lake, and Sacred Stittsville, the bright grove of Poseidon. North Grenville, abundant in vineyards. South Grenville, East Grenville, Osgood, Pakenham upon the seashore. With them came 50 ships, and aboard each, 120 young Eastern Ontarians set sail. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I will remind you, was just the first five lines of the catalogue of ships, and further, it was just the first 50 ships in the fleet. And recall that Agamemnon launched a fleet of a thousand ships, all of which Homer details in his Iliad's catalogue of ships. And if you are a Homeric translator, well, your first task as a translator is to keep inside of your translation anything including Homer's catalog of ships, which Homer originally put there. And then, of course, what you try to do is you try to translate it and, if at all possible, find some way to make that particular boring or uncomfortable passage somehow sing. And that leads me neatly into task number two of the Homeric translator. Capture the Odysseys or the Iliads poetry. 
And poetry, as we know, uh, if you read it to yourself, or particularly if somebody reads it out loud to you, has a particular rhythm and a particular music to it. So what a translator has to attempt to do is take Homer's original poetry, find the music in the ancient Bronze Age Greek language, and then, if you will, find a way to translate that music into a quite different language. Now, I confess that I have no idea how Homer's poems sound in the original, by the simple virtue of the fact that I don't read Greek, ancient or modern. But the translators that I talk to do report to me that Homer's poetry in the original Greek is actually quite stunning. But the trick of translating that stunning music into English? Well, apparently it is no easy trick. And here's why. The Iliad and the Odyssey were written down in a poetic meter called Dactylic Hexameter. And that particular poetic meter, all translators seem to agree, although it creates perfect poetry inside of Greek, well, it suffers quite badly indeed in English. As the translator Stephen Mitchell tells his readers, Dactylic Hexameter is a notoriously unfortunate verse in English. So what translators have to do is find a rhythm that does work in English, a rhythm that our brains, our English-speaking brains, are already hardwired to hear as music. And it seems as though each translator struggles mightily with this central and translation-defining task. Uh, Mitchell goes on in his essay to inform his readers that, quote, when I began to translate the Iliad with the oceanic surge of the Greek in my inner ear, my first job was to find the appropriate meter in English. I knew that if I did that, the right words would then fall into place by themselves. And the translator Emily Wilson reports that, quote, Homer's music is quite different from mine, but my translation sings to its own regular and distinctive beat. So to help us understand this, to help us understand just how difficult it is for a translator to make an archaic Bronze Age language sing inside of modern English, I'm going to suggest that you try out a particular little experiment. Here's what I'd like you to do. Not right now, but after you listen to this podcast. I'd like you to select a lyric, maybe a lyric from your favorite or possibly even your all-time favorite pop song. Now, I want you to take that lyric and copy it into Google Translate and then instruct the good people at Google or the algorithm, I suppose, if we're being accurate, to then translate your favorite pop song lyric into some foreign language. I'd suggest you instruct Google to translate it into a language that you do not know at all. And now, take that Google translated lyric and instruct Google to retranslate that lyric once more back into English again. And then folks, step back and behold the translation results. Now, I've done this quite a few times just to test it out, and I can report two things. First of all, the content of the translation usually suffers badly, and inevitably some of the meaning is lost. But next, and always, 
What is truly, truly lost in this process of translation is the poetry and the music of the original lyric. If you do this exercise, folks, you will find yourself staring at the lyrics of what was once your favorite song, and you will notice that those lyrics no longer sing. So, what is the second task of the Homeric translator? Simply put, to make a song sing with as much poetry, energy, imagery, and beauty in the English as it did in the original Homeric Greek. And the remarkable thing is that a gifted translator can do just that. So now on to task number three. Create a translation true to the Homeric original, but that your contemporary readers can actually understand. And folks, this isn't nearly as easy as it sounds, for the very simple reason that the English language is continually changing and evolving over time. And an English translation that was once entirely understandable to listeners can, within a very few generations, become entirely incoherent to a new generation of listeners. Now, many of us first encountered this problem when we were handed a copy of the King James translation of the Bible. The words, while they might have sounded poetic and noble and impressive and even inspiring, well, the truth is, much of the time, the meaning of those words simply baffled us. And the same sort of challenge exists in translating Bronze Age Greek Homer into contemporary English. The translator has to find words that work for her modern readers, but at the same time, words that do not destroy the unique feel of the Homeric original. So in essence, this is a challenge of trying to find the sweet spot between Bronze Age epic nobility and contemporary English comprehendability if that's even a word. As the translator Emily Wilson so succinctly puts it, one is always skirting between the Charybdis of artifice and the Scylla of slang. And isn't it amazing that now that we're all experts on Odyssey, we actually get her Scylla and Charybdis reference. But back on topic. What I want to do is read to you the famous opening lines of Homer's Odyssey, first as translated by the eminently brilliant Alexander Pope back in 1725, and then by the new rising star, Emily Wilson, in 2017. So, first off, here is Alexander Pope's 1725 translation of the opening lines of Homer's Odyssey. The man for wisdom's various arts renowned, long exercised in woes, O muse, resound, who, when his arms had wrought the destined fall of sacred Troy, and raised her heaven-built wall, wandering from clime to clime, observant strayed, their manners noted, and their states surveyed, on stormy seas, unnumbered toils he bore, safe with his friends to gain his natal shore. Now, 
folks, Pope's translation, I have to remind you, would have been eminently clear and understandable to anybody reading it or listening to it back in the day, the day being 1725. But I am going to hazard a guess that most of us just listening to Jeff's rendition of Alexander Pope were more than a little wee bit baffled by Pope's language. And if you'll allow me a brief sidebar here before I continue with Wilson's particular translation, when listeners do send me their emails complaining that they are finding the Iliad or the Odyssey impossible to understand, Jeff? Well, on further inquiry, it frequently turns out that those particular listeners have availed themselves of one of the royalty-free, and therefore usually written many centuries ago, versions of Homer that are available all over the internet. Just get yourself a contemporary translation, folks. It really does make all the difference. And if you need evidence of that, let's now go back to Homer's opening lines of the Odyssey and listen to how Emily Wilson translated those lines in the year 2017. Tell me about a complicated man. Muse, tell me how he wandered and was lost when he had wrecked the holy town of Troy and where he went, and who he met, the pain he suffered in the storms at sea, and how he worked to save his life and bring his men back home. And now, quite wonderfully, ladies and gentlemen, thanks to a translation that 21st century readers can understand, the opening lines of Homer's story make eminently good sense. Enough sense, in fact, that a reader new to the poem might even be tempted to read on a little bit further. So to conclude, each generation of translators has to do what Pope did for his listeners in 1725 and what Mitchell or Wilson or Fagels have recently done for us. Find language that your reader understands without killing the beauty, the poetry, and the music of the original ancient Greek. And of course, the irony of all of this is that some hundred years or so from now, an English reader will throw down their Fagels or their Wilson or their Mitchell translation in complete despair and complain to anybody who cares to listen that, quote, this translation makes no sense to me at all. The language is archaic and totally old-fashioned. Why would anybody write like this? And then an entirely new generation of translators will heroically arrive on the scene to save the day and, of course, to save Homer, too. But I digress. Now on to task number four. And task number four is brief. Have something new to say or a new way of saying it. And why does this matter? Because, first of all, there are already over 100 Iliads and 75 Odysseys out there and available to the public. So why are you, my Homeric translator friend, setting out to spend the next few years of your life garroted up in a closet someplace and creating your new translation? And I'm going to hazard that you're not likely in it for the cash. And though I can't personally speak from experience for those of you translating Homer, if it is anything akin to 
podcasting Homer, then what you're engaged in is a labor of love and not a viable way of making a living. Like most podcasters that I know, I personally lose money on every episode of podcast that I produce. I mean, who'd have thunk it that voluntary listener donations would not turn out to be a reliable and viable revenue stream. But like most podcasters, I choose podcasting over the more fiscally attractive alternative of flipping burgers at McDonald's because podcasting, my guess is, is rather more rewarding. And I can only assume the same is true of the folks who have dedicated their lives to translating Homer. So quite possibly, folks, the old saying, art is its own reward, is actually mostly true. But that leads us back to task number four of the Homeric Translator. Be very sure that you have a reason, a personal, non-monetary motivation for entering into the work of creating a brand new translation. Be convinced before you begin that you have some idea of a new way in which you personally are going to make this ancient epic sing. And if you do, then you, me, all of us will be absolutely fine. So that wraps up the four big tasks of the Homeric translator. To recap, task one, translate. Do not paraphrase, extemporize, embellish, or edit. Task two, capture Homer's poetry. Find some way to make an ancient Greek poem sing for a contemporary audience. Task three, find language that your readers can actually understand without killing the beauty of Homer's epic text. And finally, task four, make sure that you actually have some reason, some motivation for setting out to create a new translation in the first place. And with the top four tasks in place, let's move on to the top Two myths about translating Homer. And myth number one is that there is an agreed-upon canonical original text of Homer just sitting out there from which all translators are now working. And the short answer, folks, to this particular myth is no, there is not. So allow me to offer a concrete example. Ladies and gentlemen, as I sit here recording these words... I have, right in front of me, you could see them if you could watch, three translations of the Odyssey actually open. Over here on this side is Mitchell, in front of me is Wilson, and off a little wee bit to the left is my Fagel's translation. But those three translations are not the same. Folks, my Mitchell translation has cut out well over 300 lines of the Odyssey, which Fagel's and Wilson well, their translations have kept in. So how or why would something like this happen? And the short answer is that, well, in the long history of copying, recopying, translating, and publishing what is, I need not remind you, a 2,500-year-old work, well, various writers and translators might have added some bits of their own to the original Homeric text. But the problem is that none of us can agree on precisely what bits of text might not be original Homer. 
and the evidence to answer the question has been lost in some cases for likely almost 2,500 years. So here's what happens. Modern translators like Wilson, like Fagels, like Mitchell will come to a passage in the Iliad or the Odyssey, read it, and then think to themselves, hmm, this doesn't feel right, this doesn't quite fit, and then they will have to decide, following their own best scholarly muses, I suppose, whether or not to keep the awkward bit in or to cut the awkward bit out. Or to pull a compromise, cut the awkward bit out, and then slap it into the back of your translation in the form of an appendix, which is incidentally exactly what Mitchell does. Now, there are all kinds of examples of this particular phenomena inside of the Odyssey, but let's take a look at one of the examples that I can share with you, which will keep me well clear of any future plot spoilers. So let's go back and revisit Odysseus's tour to the land of the dead. Now, folks, in this particular passage from the Odyssey, Odysseus encounters his dead mum, Anticlea, and the two of them have a brief conversation before Anticlea vanishes back once again into the shadows. And then the story carries on, much the same way as I told you the story in episode number five of Odyssey, the podcast. But what you need to know, and I didn't tell you then, is that when I was putting together episode number five of Odyssey, the podcast, I had decided to work from Mitchell's 2013 translation. But had I instead chosen to use Wilson's 2017 translation of the same Odyssey, I would have, in my storytelling, once Anticlea vanished back into the mist, have proceeded to tell you an additional story. Because in Wilson's translation, Odysseus, following his visit with Mum, then encounters a long list of famous dead women, seven of them in total, and Odysseus takes the time to tell we listeners the story of each of those seven dead women. And only after this particular section of the Odyssey, do the two translations, Wilson's and Mitchell's, line up with each other once again? So why did this happen? Well, because Mitchell believes that the famous women story is, in his words, a non-Homeric interpolation. That is, I quote Mitchell, poorly integrated and has no relevance to the story. So what Mitchell decided to do was cut the passage out. But Emily Wilson, following her best muses and her scholarly understanding, Emily Wilson chose to leave the story of the seven women in. As does, if you are curious, Fagel's too. So which of the translators is technically, historically, or translatorly, if that's even a word right? Well, personally, I don't have the foggiest idea or the qualifications to even consider weighing into the debate. Now, folks, this is not simply a contemporary issue facing modern Homeric translators. And the question of what to leave in and what to take out has been around pretty well for as long as Homer himself. 
So for example, there were two ancient scholars working out of the Library of Alexandria way back in the 2nd and the 3rd centuries BCE, and they argued that Homer's Odyssey really ends in Book 23 at precisely line number 295, and that the balance of Book 23 and all of Book 24 of the Odyssey were not originally composed by Homer. Now, in the interests of avoiding plot spoilers, I cannot dive into the particulars and the specifics of that debate here. But we will get back to that debate in a future upcoming post-story commentary. All I'll do right now by way of teasing you is to tell you that in my view, those two long-dead Alexandrian scholars... I think they make an intriguing and arguably even a compelling point. So that concludes myth number one, the myth that all translators agree upon what is definitive Homeric text. So now on to myth number two. And that myth is that the translator's work is neutral. And that therefore, by extension, a properly done translation functions as nothing more than a transparent window through which a reader can see the original Homeric Greek. And ladies and gentlemen, this myth is just, well, bluntly put, patently false fake news. Translation of Homer, of religious scripture, of national constitutions, of treaties between peoples, in fact, translation of any document in which the language, the lexicon, or the culture is now quite different from the original document that was penned, well, translation is always a profoundly political act. And therefore, of course, by extension, the values of the translator and of the translator's contemporary culture well, those values influence, they permeate, and arguably they even change the intent or the meaning of the original text being translated. So that's a lot of highbrow literary postmodernist theory. Let's now turn to the Odyssey for some specific concrete examples of what it is I'm talking about. And folks, this is going to get fun now because the very opening lines of Homer's Odyssey actually offers us up a perfect little example and a wonderful little experiment. So here goes. In the opening lines of Homer's Odyssey, the bard, the storyteller we call Homer, calls upon the muse, in this case the muse who is the goddess of poetry and performance, to assist him in telling his epic story. And here is what Homer says. Muse, tell me about a polytropous man. Tell me how he wandered and was lost. And, well, you've heard the full passage already, so I won't continue quoting it all to you. But folks, here's the translation issue. The word polytropous, as we talked about way back in episode number one, well, it's a Greek adjective for which there is no literal English translation. Because Polytropus contains, in one Greek word, a whole bundle of English concepts. So, for the Homeric translator, sitting down to 
tackle a full translation of Homer's Odyssey, well, the translator actually comes up against a major and a defining challenge in the very first lines of Homer's epic. Because the first sentence of the poem defines the lead character's core personality. Homer informs his listeners that Odysseus is a polytropous man, and the translator, right up front, then has to decide on what English word to substitute for the Greek word polytropous. And it's a pretty crucial task to get right. Why? Well, because first impressions, as we know, matter. And we readers, we listeners, who know not the first thing at all about Odysseus as we're cracking open the Odyssey, well, we are very much going to be guided by the adjective that our omniscient narrator chooses in his or her opening sentence. So, I'm going to invite you to play a little imagination game with me. I want you folks to imagine one of two different scenarios. Both scenarios work equally well, so choose the scenario that captures your imagination best. So, in scenario one, you are speaking on the phone with a friend who is proposing to set you up on a blind date. A blind date with a guy named Odysseus. Or, in scenario number two, you are speaking on the phone with a prospective employer. And that employer has just suggested that you hire, for your company, a guy named Odysseus. And so, now you, in either the dating game or the employment game, take your pick, on the telephone, turn to your friend and you ask your friend the obvious question. Uh, so can you tell me about this guy Odysseus? In a word, what sort of a man is he? And the truth is, folks, that your friend's choice of adjective right now in answering that question will, consciously or unconsciously, it will profoundly inform either your date or your job interview to follow. In fact, depending on the adjective that your friend uses at this moment, the poor guy Odysseus might not even get the date or the job interview. So, let's for fun list some of the ways that Homeric translators have introduced we readers to Odysseus and examine the English words that they have chosen as best equivalents to the original Greek word polytropus. And I will invite you, my listeners, to keep your own personal mental checklist, if you will, of which words from the list of one-word impressions of Odysseus to follow, you personally might consider bringing in for a job interview or inviting on a blind date. So in a word, tell me about this guy Odysseus. What sort of a man is he? Well, since you ask, I would say that Odysseus is wise, prudent, shrewd, resourceful, crafty, many-sided, sagacious, adventurous, ingenious, versatile, restless, wily, cunning, and complicated.
So folks, back to my original point. Translation is definitionally not a neutral task. A translator who labels Odysseus as wise in the Odyssey's opening lines is setting her readers up for a profoundly different character than does the translator who chooses to label Odysseus as either wily or cunning. And now if you ask, my own personal favorite translation at the moment is Emily Wilson's decision to use the word complicated. But I suppose I do have to confess that I've always had an affinity for any song, be it composed by Homer or by Isaac Hayes, that sings the story of a complicated man. But I digress. Back to my assertion that translation is political. Or to put it another way, that translation is not a neutral mirror through which we can see the original text, but rather a reflection of the values, the beliefs, and sometimes even the agendas of the translator and her culture. And uh, if you'll actually permit me yet another aside, folks, even my choice of the word her to modify culture in the previous sentence will tell some future historian that Jeff was doing his podcasting in a post-year 2000 Western liberal democracy. My father's generation, for example, would have instinctively and with absolutely no malice of thought always used the word his in front of the word culture, or actually in front of pretty much any word for that matter. But I, of course, well, I'm already backdating myself politically through my binary gendered use of the phrase ladies and gentlemen, which shows up throughout my podcast. And no doubt a hundred years or so from now, when Odyssey the podcast is discovered in some cloud server scrapyard and played for a future generation of listeners, well, they will find my continual use of ladies and gentlemen as quaint, awkward, or possibly even oppressive. And then some new podcaster will be called upon to tell Homer's story anew and to rectify the errors of my oh-so-embarrassingly 21st century podcasting lexicon. But back to the present for yet another example of which I speak. Folks, when I first looked into Wilson's Homer, I was actually quite thrown by her jarring use of the word slaves to describe the characters who inhabit the fringes of the Odyssey. Characters that I had always read in every other translation of Odyssey as either house servants or as handmaids. Now, Wilson's translation is historically correct. As she explains in her notes, Homer's ancient Greek word, a word spelled D-M-O-E, don't ask me to pronounce it, does not emphatically translate as either house servant or as handmaiden, but rather as a much more graphic and jarring word, slave. And of course, when I stopped to think about this as a former history teacher, well, I had always intellectually known that the Greeks of the Bronze Age and of Homer's time kept, bought, and sold slaves. But, 
For centuries, translators, who knew, like me, this historical reality, have, it seems, deliberately chosen to soften the language of Homer from using the word slave to instead employing a more genteel word like handmaid or servant. And possibly, and I'm just speculating here, they did so to shield we readers from having to confront the harsh reality that this story's hero Odysseus and its heroine Penelope were slave owners and active and engaged participants in the flourishing Mediterranean slave trade. But perhaps slave, earlier translators decided, was just too uncomfortable a word to be bringing up at their particular Homeric dinner table. Now, to Wilson's credit, in her excellent translator's notes, she is quite upfront about her agency and even about her possible agendas in her translation decisions. Here's what she says, I'm going to quote. A translator has a responsibility to acknowledge her own agency and to wrestle in explicit and conscious ways not only with the multiple meanings of the original in its own culture, but also what her text may mean and the effects it may have on its readers. And if you will indulge me in one final example. In the podcast episode that you are going to be listening to next, young Telemachus is going to meet the famous Helen of Troy. Now, I won't reveal to you the details of that meeting now. I want you to listen to the episode. But I do want to direct you to a brief moment of Helen of Troy's self-talk, if you will. Here's what's happening. Helen is describing to her guest, Telemachus, the historical reality that years earlier, she had left her Spartan husband, Menelaus, and moved into Troy with a new Trojan husband, a man named Paris. And that event, we know, precipitated a 10 years long Trojan War. So, in the moment of Helen's self-talk that follows, Helen reflects back and describes her role, or her possible role, in causing or precipitating that war. Now, I'm going to read you three different translations of the same line from the Odyssey's text. Three different ways that three different translators have put words into Helen's mouth to describe her self-reflective feelings about her agency or culpability in the Trojan War. So here they are. First of all, Robert Fagels' translation. I quote, When all you Greeks fought at Troy, launching your headlong battles just for my sake, shameless whore that I was. And now here are the words that Stephen Mitchell's translation puts into Helen's mouth. When, for my sake, bitch that I was, you Greeks went off to fight beneath the great walls of Troy. But now, folks, listen to the words that Emily Wilson's translation puts into Helen's mouth. The day the Greeks marched off to Troy, their minds fixated on war and violence. They made my face 
the cause that hounded them. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I think we can all agree that there is a profound difference between those first two translations, wherein Helen refers to herself as the bitch or as the shameless whore who caused the Trojan War, and Wilson's translation, in which Helen expresses absolutely no culpability for causing that war at all. And given the magnitude of the question involved, Helen's role, her volition, her agency, her attitude in the entire Trojan War epic, then you would think that getting Helen's own personal view on the matter right would be of paramount importance to the translator. But somehow, using the same Homeric text and translating it into English, Fagels, Mitchell, and Wilson come to profoundly different translation decisions. And decisions which I would argue are profoundly consequential in we the reader's understanding of the text. Now I am, I fear, grossly ill-equipped to offer anything approaching an answer to the question of so whose translation is right and so whose translation is profoundly wrong. All I can do is refer you to Wilson's excellent essay in which she offers a scholarly defense of her translation choice. And further to her credit, from the translator's notes that I have read from other translators, I will remark that while those other translators spend plenty of time acknowledging and defending their poetic decisions, they usually do not acknowledge or I suspect even realize that they too have made political or polemic decisions in their translations of Homer. So that wraps up myth number two, that the translator's task is neutral. Because quite obviously, just from the examples we've explored, it is not. Okay, so now on to a few final comments in the third section of this post-story commentary. And that is my promised item of discussion on how I use, and no doubt frequently misuse or abuse, translations of Homer inside of my own podcasting projects. But before I begin, just allow me to put it on the record. I do stand in awe of any individual bright enough, educated enough, and, well, I guess committed enough to even attempt to launch into a translation of Homer, let alone manage to steer the project safely and gloriously home. And on a note of gratitude, well, obviously my podcasting efforts and my live shows would be, of course, impossible were it not for the prior work of all of you wonderful translators out there. So if you're listening, thank you. So now on to my quick review of how I use Homer translations in my podcasting projects. First of all, of course, I have the luxury of using as many different translations as I wish to when I'm putting together my own particular script. And folks, that's actually what I do. When I'm writing a new episode of a podcast or writing a new script for a live performance show, I sit down at my computer with my favorite translations open in front of me and I start to read Homer's story. And then out of the wealth of alternatives and options that multiple translators offer to me, 
plus a little bit, I suppose, of my own instincts and experiences as a stage performance storyteller. Well, out of all of that, I cobbled together a draft of my own unique script. Following the draft stage of script writing begins the painful trial and error and back to the drawing board process of rewriting or re-recording or re-rehearsing the original draft until eventually, sometimes many, many weeks of eventually later, I finally end up with a creation which I dare to believe might even sing. And then that creation gets sent up to the cloud, if it's a podcast, or premiered on a stage, if it's a live show. Now, folks, you will notice that I never offer attributions to specific translators when I am quoting lines from the Iliad or the Odyssey inside of my podcast. And the decision to not attribute is actually quite deliberate on my part. Here's why. When I get into my podcasting or live performance groove and my Odysseus or my Agamemnon or my Achilles begins to speak, well, he might start out as Fagels, but then sometime during his speech, he might drift into a bit of Wilson before wrapping it all up at the end with, well, a tiny bit of Mitchell too. And always, of course, thrown into the mix, there is a healthy helping of Jeff. So, out of respect for the translator's art and the care that I know they have taken in agonizing over precisely the right word or phrase, I choose to avoid making specific translators' attributions. Because I am quite aware that most of the time when I get into a storytelling role, I do not quote very precisely. And that, folks, is as good a place as any to wrap up this little overview on the huge topic of translating Homer. Now, if you want to learn more about translation, I highly recommend the introduction essays in Wilson's Odyssey, or in Stephen Mitchell's Odyssey, or in his Iliad, or the brilliant essays written by Bernard Knox in Robert Fagels' translation of Odyssey and Iliad. And if you want to dive into a translation of Odyssey to read just for fun, then, well, for me, both Mitchell and Wilson are quite wonderful. But they are both quite, quite different in the way they set about being wonderful. And if the Iliad is in your plans, well, then it's going to have to be Mitchell or Fagels that you start with, because I'm still waiting and hoping that Wilson will grace the world with an Iliad someday. And with all of that in place... I will now formally say my goodbyes. So, in our next episode, we will carry on with the story of the goddess Athena's rescue mission to Ithaca, part two. And in the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. And have yourselves absolutely awesome days. Awesome days.